Uh, you can talk about H3. So Smed, why don't you uh, take as much time as you want and uh, let the guys know what to expect. All right. Well, good morning, men. Thankful to be here with you guys. Um, I'd love to just start by taking a look at 2 Timothy 2.2. So you guys would look at that. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul is telling his protege, Timothy, these words. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, the, the things that Paul is talking about there are, are the things of sound doctrine. They're the, they're the truth, the body of truth that... Uh, comprises the gospel and the teachings of Jesus Christ through his apostles. And Paul is instructing Timothy to take these things and pass them on to other men. And I think Paul has something in mind like a baton. The idea here is, is one man is running a race and that man is not going to complete the race. That man is going to complete his leg of the race. But before he completes his leg of the race, he's going to take that baton, hand it to another runner who is going to take that and run his leg of the race. And it's not any individual man that finishes the race, but the baton does. And the idea here behind passing a baton to another man to run another leg of a race, uh, each individual runner is not tasked with coming up with the baton, finding one, cutting down a tree, reshaping a new one, or, I don't know, painting the baton, or adding... Glitter, not glitter, this is a men's group, decals, I don't know what you would say, um, pinstriping or something like that. The, the, the object here is just to hand the baton as it is to the next man who will run well. Um, I, I want you to think about theology that way. Uh, a lot of what happens in H3 is systematic theology. Uh, that is, we're going to be looking at um, specific topics in theology from the scriptures. And, and what you're learning right now about hermeneutics is undergirding all of the way that we do theology. So our goal is not to uh, study... Th- I'm getting ahead of myself. Time out. I'm going to come back and talk about how we do theology in a minute. Um, the point is, theology is not a bad thing. Theology is not a bad thing. I don't believe you men think that theology is a bad thing. Otherwise, you might have been tired of Grace Bible Church a while ago. Now, sometimes theology is pitted against good things. Like, uh, you know, people who are theologically minded aren't actually helping people. Or maybe we learn too much truth that we don't even apply, therefore theology is bad. Right? We don't want to go down that road. We want to say theology is good. Now, what is theology, by the way? Anybody know what, it, what is theology? It's the study of God. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Um, We want to know our God. We want to know what He is like. We want to know what He has done, what He does, and what He will do. Um, Theology is very, very important. In fact, um, everything that you do in life is theological. You do the things you do because of what you believe. You act on your theology. I believe every man is a theologian. The question is not whether you are a theologian, it's are you a good one? <laughs> is your theology biblical? Do you have the God of the Bible? 
right? And so um, Paul encourages Timothy to take these things, this body of truth, this doctrine, theology, if you will, and pass it on. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to every man you see. Right? What does he say? Entrust these to faithful men. Do you ever notice that? I think for years I had read this verse and sort of skipped over that word faithful. Why is that important? Um, What happens when an unruly man, a man who is not shepherding his heart well, a man who has not gotten a hold of godly disciplines, what happens when that kind of man, a contentious man, gets a hold of theological categories, theological ideas. Have you ever known a man like that? Have you ever been a man like that? Um, Where, man, I've got theology, and, and I know some things, and because I know some things you don't know, I can wield them over you like a bat. <laughs> I can beat you up with the things that I know. Um, very dangerous. And, and it's odd to say, but truth about God, truth statements about God in the hands of an ungodly man is not pretty. Um, Paul tells Titus um, to encourage believers to adorn the doctrine of God with good works, with good deeds. Um, that is, a godly living ought to be holding hands with right thinking. Paul here tells Timothy, entrust the things that I've been entrusting to you to faithful men. Go do that. So that they can teach others also. Um, Notice what comes first. The faithfulness precedes the entrusting and the teaching. Um, There's a reason um, that we love having build and then H3. A lot of times... Uh, discipleship of men, uh, you, you'll, you'll find a man with a pulse and you'll say, we've got to give him theology. And, and build exists to instill in men godly disciplines, the pursuit of God himself in his word, so that you don't come to theological systems and think, oh, I've got to get a bunch of information so I can win all these arguments. <laughs> no, I need to come and know God. And that is why you men are here. Um, That is why you're in build. That is why the the disciplines of shepherding your own heart in the Word of God to know the God of the Word. That is why shepherding your your own home in the close relationships that you're in and having that shepherding spill out into the lives of others precedes a year of systematic theology. Listen, we want you to know theological categories and theological truths. We want you to know all the ologies, right? Angelology, uh, sinology, end timesology, you know, all of that stuff. We want you to know those things. Um, but you, we want you men to be the kind of men who can be entrusted with those things. Um, and so build first and then H3. So let me tell you a little bit about H3. H3 is a year long, uh, well, not quite a year, about nine months long, every Saturday, um, build is every other Saturday. H3 is going to be every Saturday for about nine months. Um, and sort of same time frame, uh, two hours uh, a week, of studying um, three things. The H3 stands for heart, head, and hands. Heart uh, is an attempt to continue to reinforce the things you're getting in build. Um, head is filling your brain uh, with, and I don't mean to separate brain and heart. I know biblically they're the same spiritual organ, right? Um, but filling our mind with truth from God's Word, 
systematically. In other words, we're going to study everything the Bible has to say or, or a summary of what the Bible has to say about sin. We're going to study a summary of what the Bible has to say about theology proper, that is, God and His attributes. We're going to do a study of what the Bible says about demons and Satan. We're going to do a study of what the Bible says about end times. That's the the two, the, the second H. So heart is build disciplines reinforced. Um, the second H is head, meaning systematic theology. The third H in H3 is hands. And what I mean by that is, is we want to equip you to be able to take the Word of God and actually teach it to others. Um, we want you to be able to um, take a passage of Scripture, apply the hermeneutics that you're learning right now, and teach others. Um, and at the end of the nine months, uh, every guy in H3 preaches a 20-minute sermon. And um, the first year that we did H3, I think it was four, four years ago, um, I didn't tell the guys that they'd be preaching a sermon at the end because I wasn't sure who'd sign up. And uh, we did a review at the end, and I, and I asked the guys a question. I said, if I had told you you were going to have to preach a sermon at the end of this, would you have participated in H3? And 75% of them said, no, George is shaking his head. It's going, no way. <laughs> um, and so I, I think I understand the, the intimidation factor of, uh, of, of preaching and teaching. You know, if you're thinking, man, I don't want to be a part of something where I have to preach a sermon. I don't know what I'd stand up and say for 20 minutes. Um, that's a reasonable fear. Um, it's a reasonable fear for several reasons. Just public speaking. Some of us just are terrified of that. Um, it's a reasonable fear for, man, I've never done that before. Where do you get the material? I don't. How in the world does Scott find all that stuff to say? Um, and how could I be expected to do that? Um, but then there's the other fear, and I think the, the one that never goes away, which is the, this is God's Word. I, I don't, I don't this, this is not something you just dabble in. I, I, this is serious. And to stand up in front of other men and, and open God's Word and explain it and in some sense speak for God, terrifying. And I'll tell you, I, I never get unterrified of that. Um, so that's a right fear. And if you have that fear, that's not a reason to avoid um, doing each three. Um, I will tell you that the fear of, man, how am I going to fill 20 minutes, um, goes away <laughs> pretty quickly. The problem is not, how am I going to fill 20 minutes, but um, how am I going to get all of this material, all of these observations I've made in this text, the discovery, and boil it down to 20 minutes? Um, and so I have a timer and a hook. And you just, I mean, 20 minutes is up, you know, game over, sit down. Uh, guys really run into the problem of having too much to say. Why? Because they've spent better part of half a year looking at one passage and just being a detective. What does this passage say? And if you've ever taken time to just meditate on one small section of Scripture and make an attempt to overturn every stone, just looking at what's there, um, the, the joy of discovery is overwhelming. I know John MacArthur has described his preaching this way. Um, I study a bucket full. I preach a cup full. People hear a thimble full, and they spill it on the way out the door. And I start over next week and do it all over again. Um, it's really true. Um, there is so much to discover in God's Word. And, I, you know, there's a sense in which when you have the responsibility to teach, you'll learn a lot better than you ever did otherwise. 
And so I think the guys that have done H3 before, uh, well, actually, I should just ask, those of you guys who have done H3, how, what would you say about the, the preaching side of it, the, the hermeneutics, preparing for a passage, and the preaching side of it to, to the guys here? Is that something to avoid, something to get excited about? That's something to get excited about. I mean, you have, like, where you write 20 minutes, are you kidding? There's no way. And then you go to page 3, and you learn how to go through the passage and how to prepare. And like I said, all of a sudden you have all of this that you're trying to condense down. And uh, <coughs> that there goes really quick. Anybody else that was in H3 want to comment on? Well, the, the part that uh, that I really learned from is just the time that in meditation of, uh, of your passage and then uh, looking at the context where that passage fits in and uh, just to memorize it, uh, meditate on it, pray over it, and like Smith says, the, the, uh, the revelation that you get is just awesome. And uh, uh, my first uh, my first presentation to my wife to fit into a 20 minute sermon was 40 44 minutes. <laughs> so I really had to focus and bring things back together, and, and uh, that was my biggest fear was getting the hook. So <laughs> I didn't want to stop <laughs> in the middle of something. But anyway, and the and the big part for me. Was <coughs> That, like Smith said, there's uh, in our group there were 14 women, and uh, we got to listen to I got to listen to 13 other sermons. Th- these were passages that men were meditating on for months. I got to hear the hearts of 13 other men, and it was just it was such a cool weekend. So, uh, so the teaching is great, but the uh, the, the the self. The self-teaching is even better. Thanks, Denny. I don't think I've looked at God's word quite the same since being able to delve into it and really uh, just taking that one scripture and, and just working it and reworking it and reworking it. Hmm. Uh, now every time I look at it, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a totally different experience hmm. uh, going into the Bible. And it was amazing to me that when we heard those 14 talks, uh, how connected they were. And that, that just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person ahead of me actually led it to my scripture. And, and, I mean, this wasn't set up in any way. <laughs> and then the person after me kind of, it, it's just amazing how, how, how this book, book works. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a real revelation. Um, let me just tell you real quickly the, the goals of H3. What, what are the elders of this church after um, in setting up something like this? Um, several things. Uh, we want to be obedient to 2 Timothy 2.2. Um, we, we want men, to faithful men, to be entrusted with these things. Um, men that will then pass these things on to others. Um, we want that. And so that's a, that's a primary reason why H3 exists. Um, there are other reasons as well. Um, we would love to raise up other elders. We would love for men, Paul tells Timothy, anyone who aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he aspires to. 
Um, we want more shepherds. We want men to be qualified. Um, and so uh, this is a part of the leadership development at Grace Bible Church, that we want men to be able to handle the Word of God well. Um, as, as Bob was just sharing, um, at, at the end of age three, you will find yourself just reading your Bible and noticing things like prepositional phrases and, I mean, diagramming sentences in your head. And if that terrifies you, that's a whole other conversation. Um, I think we can get over that fear too. Um, but you just learn to, to make observations of what God has revealed in His Word and how important it is and how language works. And I think you do just read your Bible differently. And we want to unleash the men of this church to handle the Scriptures well. Um, so that they can shepherd their own hearts well. Listen, if you don't have the meaning of the Scriptures, you do not have the Scriptures. Um, and so, if you're going to shepherd yourself well, you need to know what God meant by what He said. And if you're going to shepherd your home well, you need to know what God meant by what He said. And we want you to have influence in this body and beyond. And so you need to know what God meant by what He said. You need to be able to handle God's Word accurately well. And so... Um, we really just want to unleash the men of this church um, to be armed with the scriptures. Um, and then um, we want men to, to be equipped to be small group leaders. Um, and so these are all things we want people to aspire to. H3 does not make you an elder. H3 does not make you a small group leader or anything like that. But it's one of the tools in, in the elders' hands to equip men towards that. And we want all of the men in our church to be heading that direction. And so that's... Um, that's one of the main reasons that, that we have um, H3. There was one other reason that we have H3, Scott. Do you remember what it was? Okay. There's another reason. I guess you'll find out when you get there. What was that? Yeah, missionaries. We want to equip people to go to the ends of the earth. Absolutely. Um, any questions about H3 or any, any of the rest of the guys who have been through it want to say anything else? Oh, I know what I want to say. Um, uh, how do I get into H3? Great question. Um, you got to go through build first. Um, that it, that's just a priority for us. And um, your faithfulness in build is is measured and observed. Um, not everybody that's in build um, should go on to H3. Um, it's not an automatic. Um, and uh, one of the things that w- when you're when you've completed build, um, you'll get an elder invite. Um, to H3. So um, a lot of things go into that, but just season of life and faithfulness uh, with, with where you've been and those kinds of things. And, um, I think that's all I have to say. Scott, can you think of anything else? No. Okay. Any of you have elders? Thank you. Great. Thank you. Smith, thank you. Um, just to, to build on that just a little bit. Um, in Second Timothy two two, um, as he mentioned, it's, it's faithful men, and, and one way to measure faithfulness in a guy is by um, his faithfulness here in in build, in, in a, not just in attendance, but in in doing the work. But that's one that's one thing. So I mean, we we look at that, we, we keep track of that, um, but we're really looking for faithfulness just in your life to build like disciplines, the, the godly, spiritual, biblical disciplines. We're looking for faithfulness in your life to your small group, to, in your ministry, um, because the command to entrust those things is, as, as Smed pointed out, to a, a certain group of men. 
And so we just want to encourage you to, to be faithful. Um, everything is a process. Uh, H3, like he said, won't make you into an elder. It won't make you into a small group leader. And build won't make you into a faithful man in and of itself. It's a tool that we hope God is using to help you learn what it means to be a faithful man, a man faithful to God. Um, and there are guys here who have decided that um, they wanted to take build again and not go to H3 because they wanted just more time to reinforce these things. I, I think that's commendable. I think that's the right thing to do. Um, and I think that's only borne fruit in the guys' lives who have decided to do that. There are guys here, obviously, who spoke about H3, who decided they wanted to come back to build. I would hope and encourage you guys that you would think um, seriously about um, making build. Would you take repeats? Do you take repeats in H3? Um, I would hope that you would make these things be a regular part of just your, your overall life and, and, and part of being a part of the body at Grace Bible Church. It's not like when you're done with H3, you go, well, now I know all the theology of that I need to know. Um, Thank you. That was the other thing. Why, why do you do this? Yeah. Are you going to go No, you go. You do it. Um, is the elders are interested in the men of this church being exposed to the theology that the elders of this church hold? Yeah. Um, and just being unified around the way we approach the scriptures and even being unified around the way we do theology. Right? The way we do theology is not pick up your favorite systematic theology textbook, compare it with other systematic theology textbooks, and cut and paste and put it together, come up with a thing we think is the best and truest or whatever. Um, the, the theology is, is, is hermeneutically driven. Um, that is, um, we want to know what God revealed in Scripture. Theological categories are only as good as what they represent from texts of Scripture. And that's the way the elders of this church want to do theology, and that's the way we want the men of this church to do theology. Even systematic theology must be exegetical. That is coming out of the text of Scripture. And so uh, a main reason for doing H3 is, is just to bring the men of this church into conformity with the way they understand so here, here's the double-barreled um, approach that the elders are after. We, build exists, as you know. We, we're calling men of this church to unify around these spiritual, biblical uh, uh, disciplines of, of the Christian life so that you'll become a faithful man uh, in those things to God. H3 extends that call and says, Now, as faithful men, we want to have you unite around even more so the hermeneutical approach the, the way that the elders of this church think the Bible should be interpreted and the theology that arises from that interpretation of, 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 of the Bible so unite around these spiritual disciplines unite around the hermeneutics of this uh, of the Bible unite around the theology derived from interpreting the Bible um, those are the men who need to be leading in this church because the, the elders, you, you, look, you don't want to be off leading in a ministry in a church only to find out that your convictions about how to handle scripture and what you're concluding from scripture is not the same as the leadership of the church. You don't want that. You don't want to be there at this church or any church, do you? That doesn't sound like fun, does it? And from the elder side, the only men that we want to put in the place of leading the body with God's word are men, 
not who agree with us on every jot and tilt. We, we don't even as elders. But there's a lot of agreement. There's a lot of agreement, hermeneutically and theologically. And those are the men that we want to entrust in, with the shepherding of God's word in the church as well. So these are just tools to help us get there, to help you get there. Um, so I, I just want to encourage you, if you've, if you've been in build, you've, done a, you've worked hard, you've done well, um, it's noticed. Yeah, your elders and, and the guys who are leading the small groups, so that they know that they, they they look at the way you do your homework, and and uh, we'll we'll be talking as we wrap this year up, and we'll start up in the fall, Septemberish. Okay. Thank you. All right. You terrified? Are you okay? I I tell you, I've. Um, I am more excited about what we're doing at Grace Bible Church than, than what I saw that I've been a part of at any church before. Um, not because I think this is the best, um, although I do think it's the best. I would probably go to the wall on it. Um, but I, I love the interaction with you guys. I think it's in the right order of things. Um, as Smed said, a lot of times that when a guy... And look, this happened to me. I, w- I got saved when I was 19, and I was full of zeal. And my college pastor and my church noticed that. And he poured into me. And he didn't pour into me first the kinds of things that I really needed to have poured into me first. He poured into me um, how to be right how to win arguments at campus and um, all those kinds of things. And I was a reckless man. But that's what churches do when they see a young man or any kind of man who's got some kind of an eagerness. A, Load his gun! Load his gun! <laughs> Pull the trigger! Shoot! And uh, people get hurt and... Uh, Ministries fall apart, and some of those guys become elders someday, and pastors, and and uh, it wreaks havoc. Uh, so we want to work on your your character, your your spiritual disciplines, uh, which you'll never graduate from. I can tell you, you know, any of these men or elders can tell you, um, your your greatest battle every day will be for your heart before God. If you think it won't be, uh, you're you're deceived. John Piper just said it together for the gospel. He is amazed that he is still in Christ. He's been pastoring for what, almost 40 years. He, he he marvels that he is still a Christian. Now, is that because he's he's questioning God's ability to to say? No. What is he aware of? His own heart, his own sin to want to be numb to God, cold to God. Um, so you'll never stop doing what we're learning here in Build, Lord willing. So, all right, with that in mind, let's. Um, we're, we're just going to jump right back in where we left off last time after we take a five minute break. Five minute break, and then we're going to. We're going to uh, jump into things now. Um, if anybody has, again, if if, uh, if you have an extra copy of the sheet that we handed out last time, uh, make sure that it's just available. I'm not sure if we have one more that we need to get in here. I don't know if TJ got it from last time or not. But five minute break, and we'll be back together. Okay. All right. 
But before we jump in, let's do what we know we should do and that we like to do. Let's pray. Let's ask um, God to meet with us as we talk about um, these important um, principles of interpretation. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we um, again are grateful that um, somebody came to us in our life and they spoke your words to us. And there was an awareness in our hearts, in our minds. Um, that what those words meant were powerful, and everything changed. We found repentance at our fingertips. We found faith at our fingertips. We, under, we found confession of sin, something eager that we were eager to do. We found um, hope. We, we, we found fear of you. We found obedience. We found worship. We found salvation by your grace because your word became powerful and um, to us. It's not that it gained power for the first time, but we recognized its power. And Father, we are so grateful. And now what we desire is to continue to um, be able to handle your words accurately, skillfully. And we want to be able to um, represent those words well before other sinners who are in need of salvation, who need to grow in the knowledge and and grace of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would um, use this time to even um, accomplish that, to equip us further with your word. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these men who are here this morning. Thank you for their year-long sacrifice to be here, Lord. We're just grateful for that as elders, I know. And pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, where have we been? Uh, Back on page one, we we talked about the presuppositions. These are the the things that we presuppose underneath the, the interpretation of Scripture. The Bible is God's written revelation of to man. Uh, it's the inspired equally in all parts word of God. Uh, it's objective propositional rev- revelation. It's infallible in the original, etc. Number three, it's the only infallible rule of faith and practice. There's dual authorship in God's word, number four. Um, though there may be several applications in Scripture, there is only but one interpretation in each portion of Scripture. These are the things that we stand on. These are the this is the foundation we stand on as we approach scripture. We then talked about two wrong ways to interpret scripture: the allegorical method, where you basically spiritualize um, whatever is in the text, and the only way that you know if your spiritual um, your spiritualization of the text is right is you have to go to a key outside the text, and the minute you step outside of the text. To find a key, uh, it's immediately subjective, and now you really don't know if it's true, because what you concluded uh, the spiritual meaning in the text should be might not be what everybody else thinks the spiritual meaning of the text should be, and so you just you immediately enter into the land of subjectivity, and um, the Word of God is, is, is held captive to your whim. Uh, there's the what it means to me, which is more of where we live, uh, which is... Probably for many of us or um, others around us that we may know, it's just a sloppy use of the word means. 
here's what it means to me, and then somebody else says, well, what it means to me, and the minute you say that, you've got two different meanings for the one text, what it means to you, what it means to you, but what we understand as a presupposition is there's only one meaning. When you communicate, you don't intend to communicate two meanings, you only ever communicate one meaning. And so you wouldn't want somebody going, well, what he, what it, what he said, what it means to me is this, and you don't want your wife saying, well, what daddy said means to me is, and have your... Uh, child say, no, mom, what daddy means is this. You want to say, no, no, no. What I meant was this one thing, not what two different things. Um, and so we just need to extend to God the same courtesy that there's only one meaning. And so then we introduce the right way, uh, which is a careful and normal, which is a literal, grammatical, historical. And now what we're going to, uh, in the way of interpreting Scripture, and now what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through 12 principles of that right way, of, of a careful approach to Scripture, of a normal approach to Scripture. Um, so let's jump in. These are not in any um, inspired order, 1 through 12. Uh, 12 is not an inspired number, even though there were 12 apostles, there were 12 tribes, there's 12 numbers on the clock, there's 12 in a dozen, there's 12 months in the year. It's not an inspired number. But it is curious why 12 is so important. Um, but uh, these, are, these are 12 that we want to draw your attention to. Number one, the clarity of Scripture. Um, the Bible can be understood. Why? Because it's easy. No. The Bible can be understood. Why? Let me ask you a question. Um, why can you under, be understood when you communicate uh, to your boss, to your wife, to your children, to your roommate? Why can you be understood? Because you meant what? To be understood. So um, you communicate so as to be understood, right? And guess what? God did too. So the Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. Isaiah 45, 18 and 19, I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed by God belong to us and to our sons forever. That we, why? That we may observe all the words of this law, Moses says. So God revealed them so that they may be observed. Okay? Now, not everything in the Bible is easy to understand, right? Peter said that about Paul's words, remember? In 2 Peter 3. Um, however, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 indicates, God revealed His word to be understood and lived, observed. The revealed things, the words of the law, are ours, Moses says. That means we study God's Word expecting to discover a coherent message. Listen, guys, you never approach God's Word expecting to be confused. You should not expect that any more than you would want somebody to listen to you coming expecting to be confused. You would want them to come expecting to understand what you're saying. Now, you may not communicate clearly. That's an issue. But God doesn't have that issue. You and I have that struggle of communicating clearly. God does not. Um, so you come to God's word expecting to discover a coherent message Um, when we do come across theologically obscure passages we must give precedence to the clear sections of scripture that address that issue so there are going to be places in scripture you're going to come and you're going to go I have no idea what that means and you might study it for 12 days 
Because the number 12 is important. For 12 days. <laughs> and you may still conclude, I have no idea what that's saying. At that point, you turn to other clearer portions of Scripture and see what they bring to bear on that. Um, so there was not a time in your recent past where you communicated in such a way so that you would not be understood. We just don't, language just doesn't exist for that. Listen, there are ideas inside you. There are thoughts inside you. You want them to get out to other people. And the vehicle that humans use to get what is hidden inside a head into another person's head are words. You take those words, you construct them in a certain order, you link them, and you cement them all together in such a way and the and you do it on purpose so that the person does the same thing with them as they interpret them as you did when you communicated them so that the same thought gets inside their head. Why do we do that? Because of God. That's what God is and does. Jerry. Yeah. Parable is a, um, a a way of doing that. Parable is not a parable is not a, a an instrument to confuse. A parable was actually designed by God, in my opinion, um, to do two things at the same time. Not communicate two meanings, but do two things at one time with the one meaning. One, and it all has to do with His sovereignty. He could communicate truth where the ones that He is working in. To understand, they'll read it and they'll go, oh my goodness. And at the same time, to have the others that he's not working in, that maybe even that he's hardening, they hear the same message and they don't get it and they stay under condemnation. In fact, I think that's what you'll find Jesus saying in Matthew 13 on the parable of the soils and in Luke's uh, passage of that. Jesus talks about there's two things going on at the same time while he's explaining a parable or speaking parables it's so that you get it all things are explained to you or are revealed to you but it's so that they would hear but not hear so a parable is literally literally a um, casting alongside you take a an everyday illustration of farming of making bread um of, of, a, of, a, of a tree, a fruit, or whatever, and you use that everyday situation to communicate, Jesus says, something about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so it's a way of revealing the, what's inside God's mind about it, but at the same time also being used to condemn the ones who hear but don't hear. Does that make sense? It's a great question. So the reason we communicate with words is because we're like God in that sense. This is the way God is. In fact, God feels so strongly about words that one of the members of the Godhead is called what? The Word. The Word word became flesh. Um, God is eager to communicate Himself. Alright? Number two. So you expect the Word of God to be clear. Number two, the accommodation of revelation. That means just basically God accommodates himself when he reveals himself to our intellect. Now, we have finite minds, we don't have infinite minds. We have finite knowledge, we don't have infinite knowledge. But not only that, we have depraved knowledge. It's not just that our, our, our 
knowledge is finite, our finite knowledge is actually stained by sin and rebellion against God. And so, if God is going to communicate to us, He's going to need to use words in such a way, He's going to need to accommodate to our finite, fallen intellect so that we get it. Right? God revealed His truth in terms that human beings can understand. For example, the scripture was written in well-known human languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Three of the most common kinds of languages in their day possible. Just very basic. The, 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 even a fisherman in Galilee could understand Greek. An uneducated kind of person. <clears throat> God decided, I'm going to take thoughts of me, constrain them to the words in that language, and reveal myself through them. Okay, That's accommodation, even when he uses language. <laughs> Uh, or human language. When it speaks of infinite or divine concepts, it does so in terms we can relate to. For example, Second Chronicles 16.9 says God's eyes move throughout the earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God the Father, a spirit being, has physical eyes like you and I do, right? Because he doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptive of the human senses, therefore he described his infinite perceiving abilities that way. Accommodation means God stoops to our level. Describing himself in ways we can understand. And listen, we do this, you do this with your children, or you did it with your children when they were younger. You accommodated your language to their level of understanding, right? Now, when you did that, did you do that to be confusing to them? No, you did it for just the opposite, to be clear. So when God accommodates, it's not to confuse us, it's actually to what? Help us to be clear. So accommodation of revelation is a part of helping his truth become clear to us. Um, Third principle of interpretation, one meaning of a text. We've already talked about this. Although a text may have many different applications, it has only one meaning. The meaning of the original human author moved by the Holy Spirit. We looked at 2 Peter 1 last time. Consider, for example, the command... Do not steal, from Ephesians 4. For the 10-year-old, that might apply to shoplifting a candy bar. Now listen, here's here's how we get sloppy with our use of the word means. The word mean. You could take that sentence, for the 10-year-old, that might mean shoplifting a candy bar from a store. Bad use of the word mean. That's not what it means, that's how it applies. Okay? You've got to be thinking. Meaning and application are two completely separate things, must be kept separate. They're not the same thing. They're connected. Which one flows out of the other? Which one flows out of the other? Application flows out of meaning. Okay, you've got to keep them separate. So the application of the, the command, do not steal, uh, for a 10-year-old might apply to shoplifting a candy bar. For an adult, it might apply to doing non-work-related activities while his employer is paying him to work. Those are two different applications. However, there is only one meaning to the text. Don't take something that is not yours or not yours to use in that way. Now, I would, um, I'll just introduce to you now, and we'll probably talk about it um, in more depth next time. Um, there, there's, a, there's a sense, and there's a, there's a, a way in which um, many theologians and Christians throughout the ages have tried to explain the way they think 
the New Testament is using the Old Testament. Because it appears to us that when I go to the Old Testament and I read what's there, I understand that meaning. And then when I get to Matthew, he's quoting it. And what it appears he intends to mean, his meaning is not the same thing as that meaning. So that text must have one, two meanings. Or a fuller meaning. And what I want to propose to you is that um, there is still only one meaning in the Old Testament text. And we'll talk about this next time. And I'll give you some examples next time from uh, Ephesians 4, from Ephesians 6, how Paul uses the Old Testament there that I think will show you um, how that there is still only one meaning in the Old Testament text. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, in writing new scripture, may be taking biblical ideas from the Old Testament and forming new scripture with new meaning, not applying a new meaning to an old meaning or extending a a more fuller meaning from an older one. Let me give you an example uh, that we've done recently in Acts 2. Peter's quotation of Joel 2 in regards to Pentecost. That's a classic. In fact, that's a that's probably one of the most um, at the center of this whole debate. Did Peter now all of a sudden assign a new meaning to what Joel revealed in 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 Joel two on the day of the Lord and the coming of the Spirit? And did he assign new meaning to all of that now, a meaning that we couldn't get before? And so he's got an apostolic way of interpreting the Old Testament that we. We need to learn. Because if we can learn what he did, then we can also do the same thing with the old... I mean, this just gets crazy. And so next time I want to introduce you to something that will just maybe um, open a door for you to consider in the days and the months and the years to come. It won't answer everything. It won't put a period at the end of it. But it will introduce you to a way of thinking about the way the New Testament writers handled the Old Testament. Um, If... The New Testament writers, in every single case, are interpreting the Old Testament, then we have a lot of trouble. Because they appear to do things with the Old Testament at an interpretation level, if that's what we say they're doing, that causes violates all kinds of rules. Paul does not operate by a literal grammatical historical. Neither does Matthew, neither does Luke, neither does John, neither does any of these guys. If that's what they're doing, and that's what I want to call into question. I want to call into question the idea that the New Testament writers in every single case are interpreting the Old Testament. I think there are a number of things differently they may be doing than just interpreting. There are some times when they do. But not every single case. And I probably just told you a whole bunch of stuff that you're like, I don't even have a peg to hang that on. <laughs> That's okay, just sweep it over to the corner and just guard it, okay? And we'll, we'll pick up some of it later. Alright, one meaning in a text. Number four. Harmony of Scripture, even though written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors. Okay, full stop. What other book do you know that's like that in human history? That's what I thought. Um, The Bible agrees with itself. Amazingly so. Or, Or not so amazingly when you consider it's one divine author. Because the Scripture was spoken by the God who knows everything and never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. 
Now, there is a danger lurking in this principle that we must avoid the practice, it's this, we must avoid the practice of determining what we believe based on one text and then forcing every other text to harmonize with that view. That leads to bad, even dishonest theology. Okay, so let me give you an example. John 3.16 says, For God, what does it say? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world. Right? Uh, let's go to Psalm 5. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. Psalm 5, verse 5. That's what we're told. In fact, that was a part of the the gospel message that we were told when the gospel came to us and we repented and believed. We, We believe God loves sinners. He loves sinners. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Uh... You hate all who do iniquity. Uh, Psalm 11, 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Wait a minute. The Bible says God loves sinners. So this... Okay, so that's true, and, and, and that's more important than probably anything else about God and the way he looks at sinners. So, I, I, here's how I can do it. Um, Psalm 5.5, 5, what, what he actually means is, is, is God doesn't hate the sinner, he hates the sin. That's what it is. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. That's what Psalm 5.5 5 means, because um, these... God can't contradict himself, and so there's only one thing that might be true, and it's that he loves the world, and so the way that I, I can exp- explain Psalm 5.5 5 and 11.5 5 is God, he loves the sinner, but he hates the sin, and so what Psalm 5.5 5 and 11.5 5 are doing is they're emphasizing that God hates the sin. There's just one big problem with that. What is it? Psalm 5.5 5 and 11.5, 5, do not say that! Right? It, I, I mean, his whole point is he hates the sinner. So, okay, so Scripture harmonizes. There's, scripture does not contradict itself. How do you explain this then? In a much better way. In a much better way. How would you explain it? Anybody want to give a give a, a give a shot at it? Mark? When he said world, he didn't mean world. So we were in the wrong passage. 11.5, um, he doesn't mean what he means in, in, in John 3.16. Is that what you're saying? Tongue in cheek, as I ask you that. You're going to change what that one means. So world doesn't mean world there. Please expand. Uh, world means uh, what the second half of that verse says. Whoever believes in it. That, was, that, was, that wasn't too bad of an idea. That was good. I'll take that. Okay, so maybe John 3.16 doesn't mean what it appears to me that it means. Everybody in its entirety. Okay, good explanation. I'll, I'll take that as a, as a good starting point. 
Anybody else? Do you ever find yourself um, thinking that that God, the way that He views things and thinks about things, has to be the way that I view and think of things? I find it difficult to same individual love that one and hate that one how do you love and hate at the same time I don't know I I don't know how to do that because I can't do that therefore God can't do it but let's think about something the way that God is let's remind ourselves God is big bigger and we are smaller some things that appear to us from our finite fallen mind to be opposites actually with God can coexist at the same time and actually come to a wonderful partnership at a very very special place the cross of his son at the cross of his son is God loving or hating there Oh my goodness. He is loving sinners and treating his son as one he hates. God can do that. So there are some things that we have to be careful of in Scripture that we don't pit against one another because we're convinced in our own minds they can't coexist, but in God's mind they might actually coexist. That's where you take your intellect. And you do what with it? You submit it under what? God's intellect in the Word of God. And you say, though I may not get that in its entirety, how these two things can coexist at the same time, I will trust God that if He says He loves and He hates, He might be able to do them at the same time. Um, If God is good, how can evil be attributed to him? Have you noticed that in the Bible? I would probably venture to guess that evil gets much closer to God in the Bible than you're comfortable with. You ever find those passages? For instance, Lamentations 3. You want to turn there for a moment? Go to Lamentations 3. Verse 32. For if he causes grief, just pull the parking brake. What? How can you be good and cause someone grief? If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, um, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? I don't understand that always. But here's what I know the Bible says. Both ill and good go forth from the hand of God. And you know what? 
that actually comforts me. Because that means the ill and the wicked and the evil in this world is under not Satan's control, but even under God's. And that means that as a, the God who loves me and my Father, that the evil that will approach my life is even under His sovereign oversight. I am not a victim of, a, of an enemy who has no constraints on him as he pours out his wickedness on me. Just like Job. Um, Job didn't have a devil who was completely without restraint just doing anything and everything he wanted. There were constraints on the devil from God. Um, so we have to take our understanding and submit it under the... Um, let me, let's go back to the cross. Was good or ill going forth at the cross? Wow, run to the cross, guys. Run to the cross. <laughs> goodness for me, goodness for you, ill and bad for Jesus. At the same time. What? Well, what does it say? For truly the city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose had predestined to occur. Yeah. We take our intellect and we submit it to God's. And we say, you are God. I'm not really sure how you do that, but you do it. And I'm thankful you do it. I don't contend with you that you do it. Okay, so some days I might. But I'm going to submit myself to you and follow you. Okay? Number five. Normal interpretation. This is what we mean by literal, grammatical, historical. If you want to write LGH there on number five, you can. Um, as we talked a little bit last time, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation has fallen on hard times. Um, among evangelicals, uh, they, they think that it's far too limiting. It, it doesn't allow for figures of speech or metaphor in language. And actually it does. And this is why we're emphasizing the word normal along with literal grammatical historical. Because what literal grammatical historical pushes and, and strives for is normal use of language. Just normal use of language. Let's talk about what we mean. This means we read the Bible following the reading practices we would consider normal for any other important document. When the office manager sends the maintenance man a memo instructing him to change the flickering fluorescent globe in the hallway, the maintenance man doesn't read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into it. He reads the memo normally. Normally. That's what we mean. See, normal is a good word to help you understand what we mean by literally. He reads it literally. Normally. Um, and he fetches a new globe and a stepladder. You can tell he's from South Africa and they have the English, the, the guy who wrote this, uh, he uses, you'll see something like the, the word harmonize is spelled with an S. For you homeschoolers, that means it should have been a Z. Um, I'm kidding. I love homeschooling. It's just, these two guys over here who are homeschooled are the ones I pick on. Um, so anyway, he, you can, his language is funny in here. Normal reading, second paragraph, means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, 
we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understood or understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examine the literal meaning and find it unlikely and just automatically accept it as a figure of speech. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, you don't have to have somebody, when they do that, we get it. We understand, oh yeah, yeah. I, language works that way. You don't have to advertise an hour beforehand, hey, the metaphor's coming. The imagery is coming. We just throw it right in there. And at first, it, it makes you listen and go, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. We, we don't have to have somebody tutor us through it. We get it. And his last paragraph. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, it's a good policy to begin with the literal. For instance, what is a door? What purpose does a door serve? Having asked that and those kinds of questions, then you can ask the question, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? The literal function of a door suggests the meaning of the figure. That's a very important sentence. The literal function determines the meaning of the figure. Jesus is the gateway to eternal life. Normal interpretation. Number six, context. Takes up a whole page because this one is so important. One of the most important summary statements ever made regarding Bible interpretation is this context determines meaning. This means that a text of Scripture is given its true meaning only when it is considered in relationship to the words around it. Okay? Here's the classic example Philippians 2 3a. In fact, Joel and I, when we were in college, we used to joke about this. Um, I, I, I'll tell you how I met Joel real quick, side story. Uh, we were in Cather Dorm at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. I was on the third floor, and he was on the fourth floor. It was the uh, first week of school, uh, and I was leaving my dorm room to walk down the stairs to go all the way across campus to the FCA meeting. And as I cut down into the stairwell and was coming down, there was a guy walking behind me, and he was coming down. And I don't remember if I said hi to him or not, but we walked down the stairs all the way out of Cather Dorm and started walking across. And as I kept walking across the huge campus, I kept noticing this guy was like always like 10 feet behind me. And I was kind of like weird. And so I would walk and I'd turn a corner to go to another building, another sidewalk. He was doing the same thing. And finally get all the way over to the building where the FCA was at and I go and I grab the door and as I open it up he's still right behind me and I'm like are you going to FCA? and he goes yeah he goes where are you going? I said FCA and he looked at me like there's no way and that was because I don't look now like I looked then and I didn't look like I should be going to FCA and so anyway that's how I met Joel that was no there's no mullets allowed um so, anyway, that was Joel. And we used to joke all the time about do nothing. Just being, what are you doing? I'm being obedient to Scripture. I'm doing nothing. Philippians 2, 3a, my favorite verse. Do nothing. <laughs> Just trying to be faithful. Uh, is that a justification for laziness? No, this is an absurd example. The, the rest of the verse says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. When the words surrounding do nothing are considered, it is clear that Paul doesn't, is not condoning laziness. Here's another example, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, right? Um, by quoting only a portion of a text, we can completely upend the obvious meaning of the text, not considering the context would have led us to actually disobey God if we had applied our interpretation. 
Um, let's go to Isaiah 10. I want you to see this, his example. And I want you to see it from um, the, the text itself. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah 1, verse 10. First chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 1.10 Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Whom is Paul talking to? Whom, whom is he addressing? Well, clearly, the, the, the rulers and the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? No. If you back up, read the context, verse 1 says, Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who lived 1,400 years after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Verse 3 says Isaiah was proclaiming God's word to Israel. Verse 8 uses the terminology um, daughter of Zion, an Old Testament phrase referring to Jerusalem. And finally, verse 9 uses the phrases, this is really important, like Sodom. We would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. So Isaiah was making a comparison between Jerusalem of his day and Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities destroyed over a thousand years before. So you see, context is very important. Um, If you'd have picked out only verse 10, you would have concluded Isaiah chapter 1 is about Sodom and Gomorrah. Your interpretation would have been embarrassingly inaccurate. Read the context. It gives you the true picture. Context determines meaning. Here are some questions you can ask to grasp the context of a particular passage. Who is writing? Who's speaking? To whom is he writing or speaking? Is there a specific situation in the text that shapes the interpretation? Uh, A favorite soundbite. Jeremiah 29.11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. I mean, we can grab that and want to run with that and make that be a life verse. That verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers of all times. Um, Let me read something to you. Watch this. This is Acts 9, verse 15 and and, uh, 16. I think it's going to be once I get there. Okay, here's Jeremiah. If you take this as, it's a general promise to all believers of all time. Okay, so here's the general promise to uh, to all believers of all time. I know the plans I have for you. I have plans for welfare for you. And not plans for calamity for you. Uh, Poor Paul. Uh, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is, uh, Paul's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. For my name's sake. Poor Paul, this promise didn't apply to him. (laughs) But it applies to me. Please, does it apply to me? Right? Even a cursory examination of Jeremiah 29 shows that this was part of a letter sent by Jeremiah to whom? Jews exiled in Babylon. Reading further, you find that this promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. The ones to whom Jeremiah was writing and the specific situation, the exile and the promised restoration, that limits the meaning of Jeremiah 29, verse 29, or verse 11. That limits the meaning. Your meaning is always limited by your context. Okay, it's definitely not a sweeping promise that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. Jeremiah himself was hated, harried, thrown in prison, kidnapped, and martyred without one convert that we know. So that promise didn't even apply to Jeremiah. You know why? 
because it wasn't given by Jeremiah to Jeremiah. It was given by God through Jeremiah to the, those who were going to be in exiles and their, their future um, generations. Context determines meaning. Uh, let me give you an example. God, how about the yeah. Psalm 14? Which is what? There is no God. Oh yeah, thank you. That, well, that's a problem with my theology. <laughs> There's no God. I didn't think about that one. Yeah, that's 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 a one out of taken uh, content. Let, let's let me show you another one. Second Chronicles. We, uh, he mentioned this one up earlier. Second Chronicles sixteen nine. I can remember one time <laughs> wanting to encourage a family member. Um, this was like I don't know maybe I can't remember what it was. It was a long time ago. I can remember thinking, oh, I read this verse in Second Chronicles sixteen. It'd be so great. And so I found it, Second Chronicles 16.9. Oh, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that they may strongly support those who, whose heart is completely His. Oh, that's exactly what they need to hear. Um, wait a minute, there's more. You have acted foolishly in this. Oh, that ruins it for what I was looking for. Um, because I actually wanted to encourage them that, you know, you, your heart is completely His and He sees it. Just don't read the last part of it. Just... Here, just look at 16.9a. And then just drop off. You have acted foolishly in this. I mean, you, you, we do this. Christians do this all the time. Um, how about, here's another one. Go to Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet. Start with Daniel and work your way to the right. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.13. We do this too. Oh, we love this first part about uh, God and His holiness. Your eyes, Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. That's perfect. There's just one little problem. What does Habakkuk say right after that? Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Uh, that kind of undermines the confidence you're trying to instill in somebody by saying God's eyes are too pure to look on evil with favor. You see, Habakkuk's whole problem is, is he knows that there's the, the, the conqueror is coming. And the, the conqueror is going to carry out all kinds of evil on Israel. And Habakkuk is actually struggling. God, your eyes, here's what I know of you. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. But... You seem to be looking on our conquerors with favor. They're evil. How is this working? I'm at, I'm at a loss here. That's the context. That's the setting. Philippians 4.13. It's in the locker room. It's above the door as the guys run out. I can do all things. Touch it as you go out. So it's even truer. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can win this game. Through Christ who strengthens us. Um, wow. See, we those are these are kind of probably you know maybe we kind of chuckle at them and but but we do this. Christians do this. I do. This. You do this when we don't understand the context. Guys, train yourself. Train yourself. Train yourself to want the original author's meaning more than you want a quick, meaningful truth for whatever situation you're in. Train yourself to want the author's original meaning more than you want just a quick little ditty. Okay?
and watch yourself and watch each other for when you explain one passage. Here's another thing with context. Have you ever noticed this? Somebody will come to you with a question. Hey, what is what does the writer of Hebrews mean in Hebrews chapter two, verse blah 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 blah? Have you ever noticed this? Oh yeah, let me. I can I can tell you. Turn to uh, Matthew. Um, let me explain what the writer of Hebrews two means by what Jesus said in Matthew. Okay, turning, ignore that passage that you asked, and I'm, let's go to a different one. Okay, be careful of that because meaning is limited by what context, Con- the immediate context. Do not turn the page too quickly. There is a principle in interpreting where at some point you want to what cross-reference, but cross-referencing is bad when you do it first. Don't leave a passage to go to another one to tell me what the first passage meant. Stay in that first passage longer. Let that passage tell itself, speak for itself what it means, right? Your context is one of the most important. That's number six. Number seven, progressive revelation. This is very, very important. I have come to love this... um, a lot. Progressive revelation. God revealed His truth over an extended period of time. In other words, revelation became more detailed as time went on. It progressed. Listen, this book that we have is not a stamp. Boom. Where the left side of the stamp came out the same time the right side of the stamp came out. The left side of the stamp, it's more like one of those roller stamps. You know what I'm talking about? The first part is there on its way, and you're and you read that, and you're like, oh my goodness, oh look what's being, look what's coming off, and 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 it comes over time. Now God put that down from for you guys from left to right, not from right to left. So interpret it from left. To write in the progressive nature that God revealed it. Now, the danger, we'll get to this. The danger for us is if you interpret it from left to right, and you start here and you interpret, but you fail to notice that anything else came after it, that's bad. Okay? You don't want to preach an Old Testament truth or reality without having chased it further through revelation. Okay? That is a danger um, inherent in the one who is operating by progressive revelation. That you'll start with the left, but you might get sidetracked and not actually finish to the right. I would rather live with that <coughs> error than taking stuff from the right and pushing it back into the left. Reading my Bible backwards. Okay? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. That tells you what God was doing. He spoke through fathers to begin with, prophets, in many, many different ways. In these last days, he's reached the pinnacle of communication in his Son. The fact that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means we must avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier. The example that Joel gives here is, is um, the, the promise in Genesis 12, 3 that God said that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. 
in Galatians 3, God revealed that part of that blessing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus Messiah. It might be a mistake to assume that Abraham understood all of that. In other words, that Abraham's knowledge was exactly the same as Paul's knowledge. So I can therefore assume that whatever Paul speaks about what he's revealing about the promise of God in and through Abraham, Abraham automatically had that. So I can take Paul's meaning and I can read it into Abraham's knowledge. That is a huge assumption to make. Um, Now, if I teach Genesis 12.3 and I unfold everything of what I think Abraham meant or was meant for Abraham and I never say anything about Paul and what he reveals, that could be a problem, right? But don't push back in to that. When studying Old Testament passages, we must take care not to read into them more than the author could have known. Once we have established the author's meaning in his historical context, it is appropriate, I would even add the word, essential. It is essential to fill that out with later revelation. However, these two steps must be kept separate. Okay, original meaning... Well, for you, left to right. Original meaning in the Old Testament. Figure out what that is. Labor for it. Labor for it. Wait. Don't turn the page. Stay a little longer. Get the meaning. Okay, now move to the right. Okay? Uh, Let me give you an example. Turn to Luke chapter 1. You know this. This is inherent in... um, Imagine... I don't know if you can remember the first time you read um, the New Testament with new eyes... The first thing I started doing when I, when I got saved when I was 19 is I started reading the New Testament. I started in the Gospels. And so I tried to, I tried to remind myself what it would have been like in Luke chapter 1 to start in verse 5 and say, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. What, where's Judea? There was a priest. What's a, a Catholic priest? There was a priest named Zacharias. The division of Abba. What's that? And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Who's Aaron? I, I know an Aaron Garcia in my closet. Um, and her name was Elizabeth. They were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the com- commandments. Commandments, okay. Uh, Etc. Let, let, let's drop down a little bit here. Um, verse 9. Uh, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple temple. There's a Mormon temple in my town. Uh, And burn incense. Well, that's kind of cool. I used to do that in the 70s when I was a little kid. Um, Okay, verse 11. And an angel. There's an angel. I saw that movie with What's-His-Name and What's-Her-Face. He became an angel. Um, Fear gripped, etc. And and you just keep going on. Verse 16. The sons of Israel. Oh, the sons of Israel. That's that's a nation. I know them. Um, uh, Verse 17. Elijah. Who's Elijah? Listen, can I ask you a question? What does Luke chapter 1 demand? What does it demand? Knowledge of what? The Old Testament. I have to interpret Luke chapter 1 through what? 
the lens of the Old Testament. The New Testament demands that I do so. I don't sit here with this meaning and go, oh, I get it, and now I'm going to push that all back in. No, it's, it's coming all at me from this direction. I've got to figure out, okay, there's priests. What kind of priest is it? I have to go back to the Old Testament. See, our whole Bible is structured this way, especially the first page of every single gospel will require you to back up if you're going to get it. So you might as well just go back and start from left to right anyway and interpret that way, right? For instance, you, what you'll see as you'll read uh, the certain theologians, they'll, they'll say, uh, they'll be talking about something in the Old Testament and they'll talk about the church in the Old Testament. And what they mean uh, is that they're saying that, well, there was actually an assembly in the Old Testament and we can call them the church. There's, there's one problem with that. The word church never occurs there. Now, what's, what do they mean? They mean, well, God was working with a people. He was working with a people in the Old Testament that he was saving. Well, we agree with that. We just don't want to call him the church. Because that's a term reserved for the New Testament. Okay? Things like that. Number eight. Interpretation versus application. There is a difference. Interpretation finds the meaning the original author intended in his historical situation. The application is, ver- is the various ways that one meaning can be lived out today. For example, Jesus said, love one another, in John 15. A wife might say, now watch the sloppy use of the word means. A wife might say, that means I need to love my husband better. So when Jesus said, love one another, that means a wife needs to love her husband better. Is that right? No. You might be able to stretch it to apply to that. Right? That's not really the meaning. If it is, her husband's going to have some trouble fulfilling that command. Because it's for a wife to love a husband, and he's a husband, and, well, he can't do that. And and if that is the meaning, the wife might get upset when another woman in the church tries to love her husband better. You... That's question 45 on Tom's Tom left the room is that question 45 you know that handout I gave you guys Tom we need, we need to talk about question 45 on your handout we'll talk about it later you can see the point the meaning of John 15 12 is a command for the disciples to exhibit a self-sacrificial concern for the others you might be able to stretch that to apply to how a wife is to relate to her husband. However, that application is definitely not the meaning of the passage. Do you understand the importance of saying it that way, guys? Do you, do you get that? We're not trying to say that a woman should not love her husband. No, she should. It's just the wrong text to go up from, okay? Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. Guys, can't stress that to you enough. You will get into more trouble when you try to put them together. Keep them separate from each other. Here's one way to do that. Let's assume you're studying Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, rewrite your own words. Uh, rewrite in your own words these two verses. Start every sentence with the words, Paul said. If you do that, Paul said. Paul said. Paul said. What you'll do, I'll tell you what, what you'll find yourself doing. I'm trying to think of a... Um, we have to do this even with New Testament epistles. 
we know that Paul is writing to a church and we're the church and so we, we do a very quick application from the New Testament. But we, are, we need to do this even because Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and there might be some things he's commanding them to do or not do that, that aren't even applicable to us. Not because we're not a church, but because we're not the Corinthians. You still have to be careful. Just because it's in the New Testament, just because it's in an epistle of Paul, doesn't mean that it's what we must do. It was what he told them to do. When Paul commands them, hey, you get all of your money ready because when I come from Macedonia, I want to pick it up and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Is that for you? It's not. But he's commanding the church to do something. But not, but not this church. Okay, is there application from that? I got to work. But is that what it means? Not for me. Okay, so you have to be careful. So it's always helpful to start with Paul said, because what does that do? That locks you into the context, Paul's context. Paul said this. Paul said that. Uh, for instance, here's how he, uh, Joel gives you an, uh, an example with Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world. Here's the wrong approach. To me, that means, again, sloppy use of the word means, to me that means we shouldn't watch television. That's what Romans 12.2 means. We shouldn't watch television. In fact, this verse means all television is evil. If you own a television, you're not a Christian, and that's what Paul said to the Romans, you know. Okay, now that's extreme, right? What's the right approach? Interpretation first. Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living that unbelievers do. That's the interpretation. That's what it means. Application. Something that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching television. To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I should be more discerning about what I watch on television. Or even, I should avoid watching television altogether. Application. Not command to you. Because I wouldn't want to step on your TV convictions okay maybe we should step on each other's TV convictions a little bit once in a while right but do you understand that the second example is is two clear crisp steps interpretation followed by what application the first one is just one big muddy swirl meaning and application lives all at the same time get you in trouble every single time okay Interpretation, what Paul said, is distinct from how you are to act based on what he said. Uh, One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. Just make sure you actually find the one meaning of the text first before you start applying. Number nine, grammar and syntax. And this, by the way, um, I'll offer it to you again. Um, If you want an electronic copy of what this came out of, I forget how many pages there are to it. Um, 63 pages long. When you get to about page 15 in this book, in the 63-page thing, the whole rest of it is just grammar exercises with Bible verses where you're learning what parts of speech are, uh, what you're learning how to diagram. And this is why that booklet that, that this comes from is actually a part of your required, one of your required texts for H3. <coughs> Because Smed takes that and he builds on it. You'll use it as a resource to look through. He won't work through it with you, but you'll use it as a resource. Um, so if you want a copy of that, I only gave you like the first eight pages of it. If you want a copy of it, just send me an email saying, hey, um, Scott, send me the electronic copy and I'll, I'll reply back and I'll attach it. And you can have the whole thing. Okay? And you can begin to look at this. But number nine, grammar and syntax is all about what comes. 
A verse does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. Guys, that, that is a very profound statement. That's very important. A verse does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. It might be qualified by the context, but the real meaning of the text is found in what the passage says according to the normal usage of language. And, and again, anytime you see normal usage of language, we mean literal, grammatical, historical. Let me give you an example. Um, Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1 with me. Came across this as, as we went through Ephesians 1. I don't know what the ESV does with chapter 1, verse 4. Let me ask you this. Who's got ESV in front of them? Jacob is, is in love. Where is that at the end of the... Is it at the end of verse 4 or is it at the beginning of verse 5? Okay, that's all right. It's at the end? Okay, that's where um, um, the NAS has it. But watch this. Uh, Verse 4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, then all the NAS puts a period, which is not inspired. It was added later by copyists who were trying to help interpret or translate and, and, and bring a degree of interpretation. It would have just said, you would have just seen all these words right next to each other without any punctuation. You would have just seen, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be wholly blameless before Him in love. Then verse 5 would continue. Now, you can see that there's this um, challenge. Uh, they put a period at the end of verse uh, at, at the end there, and they put in love in verse four because well it's it's closely tied with what's there just in its its uh, proximity, but it's weird, and so they they put a period and they think well maybe it'd be easier just to start that the new sentence in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. And you think wow that sounds pretty good, in love he predestined especially because people a lot of times think that predestination and election is just this cold, mechanical thing that God does without any feeling towards I'll choose you and not you and I haven't even thought about it and you're like, no, but God's choice and His election is always about love I like this idea that in love He predestined yes, that's what we want the only problem with that is, is grammatically speaking in Ephesians 1 Paul never leads any of his main verbs with a preposition or a prepositional phrase. He always leads with the main verb and follows it with a series of prepositions. So that means in love actually is not leading us into the next main verb. It's actually following the prior main verb in verse 4. So watch this. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Here's the main verb in this clause. That we would be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Now, let's talk about what that means. This is God's desire. This is what He was after when He chose us. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless. Now, He chose us that we would be holy and blameless where? Before Him. So it's not a holy and blameless on a horizontal level that I want to appear holy to you or appear blameless to you or you to me. But no, this is in the presence of God He wants us to. Next phrase. He wants us to be holy and blameless in love. So as he's thinking about holiness and blamelessness for us, 
He's not thinking of it apart from love. In fact, that whole being holy and blameless is submerged in love. New thought. Verse 5, He predestined us. Jacob. This is a good plug for reading, for studying multiple versions. Because hmm. otherwise that might, that might never cross your mind. Well, Paul just leads murder. You, you wouldn't see that in you the would, English. You would never see, but if, if you just did a quick text compare, you look at five versions, three of them have in love up in front of predestination, three of them have it yeah. finishing the clause. So you see that, you're like, okay, there's a difference. Yeah. So I know what you mean. I'm not sure anybody who hasn't heard what you just said understands what you mean. Go. Well, you do it. You know. You know it better than I do. This is how you. This is how you really. It's helpful for you studying. So whenever you take a passage, a practice that has served me very well, print it five different versions, three different versions, whatever you can take, exactly like Scott's doing. Put them side by side and just spend some time looking at them, saying, what's the same? What's different? As soon as you see in a different text, or in, in, across the versions, oh, they, that sounds a little bit different in meaning. It might key you in. There, there's something behind the scenes here I might need to do some more research on. Or at least I need to do some more thinking on what's the implications of these differences. And if all the versions say the exact same thing, you're pretty clear, English English probably got it. But as soon as you get five different versions say five different things, you need some help. Yeah, great point. You'd go, okay, now three of the versions translated it this way, but I noticed that two of them didn't. I want to I want to see what they were thinking. What was going on in their minds? And so you, you, that would zero you in, an English-only guy who d- may not be able to know Greek yet. You, you might go, or Hebrew, you might go, I need to dig, that's where I need to focus myself, right there first. You see how that helps you? Jack? Um, Lori and I do something similar to that in our morning Bible reading. We're reading from two different Bibles and two different translations. Uh-huh. I usually read, and then Lori reads MacArthur's commentary, but... She's looking at the MacArthur Study Bible, and I'm looking at a restricted one, the NIV. Uh-huh. And so then we bring up, are you, what are you reading? Or yeah. What is your translation say? And then we can write a note on it, maybe, yeah. to go back and look at it. It's great. That's helpful. And uh, that, could, that, that can just be a helpful way for you uh, in your English to, to get to the bottom of things. Let me give you another example, because I'll show you where this is important. And, and, and you'll really want to watch um, on, on some stuff like this. Ephesians 4, verse 22. Here's what the NAS says. And I, the, the ESV, by the way, did a great job on 4, 20 to 24. Um, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. And here's what you were taught, he says. Now here's the way the NAS does it. In reference to your former manner of life, that... You were taught this. You lay aside the old self. In the English, the way the NAS did it, that's a command. You lay aside the old self. This is what I taught you. Lay it aside. Um, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Command. Verse 24. And you put on the new self. 
um, which is in the likeness of God. And so you can be like, oh my goodness, as a Christian, I have to, I di- I have to do this. I, I'm being commanded here to lay aside my old self. Oh, and I do feel my sin rising up in me over and over. I guess my old man needs to be thrown back down to the ground. Uh, and, I need, and the new man needs to be put back on. So in other words, I guess maybe the, the old man can, that I was saved from comes back. And the new man, I can lose. He'll, he'll jump off me sometimes. i got to go find him and put him back on. Um, what does the ESV say? What do you have, Jacob? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupted through deceitful desires. Yeah. Holman Christian is awesome. He says, you took off yeah. the former way of life. Mm-hmm. The old self is corrupted by deceitful desires. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a passage where if you do the compare... Yeah, it stands out very clear. Just... Yeah. So NAS is pretty much off on its own on that one. It is. Yeah, and, and see, what that tells you is that there was a translator in NAS who uh, probably was more influenced theologically than he was grammatically here. Because he liked the idea of this is the way you go after obedience. This is the way you go after holiness. You throw off the old man. Listen, that is not the way Paul describes the Christian life. His whole point here, these are, in case you care, these are these are aorist infinitives. They're not imperatives. They're not commands. They're not commands to do anything. He's just simply saying, look, when I was with you and I taught you Jesus, um, you were taught back then in the preaching of the gospel to throw down to the ground the old man. You were taught to put on the new man. This is repentance and faith. This is conversion reality. Every place else where Paul talks about the old self and the, and the new man, those are all event realities in the gospel, conversion realities in the gospel, not ongoing processes. You don't continually put off the old man. You did that at conversion. That happened. This is the, the human side of, 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 of displaying it. You, you put the old man to the ground. That's, you want to talk about from the God side? You were crucified with Christ. You were united with him in the likeness of his death. That's God's way of saying it. Here's our way of saying it. I threw that old man to the ground. Event. Done. I put on a new man. Guess what? There's only one infinitive here out of these three. It's, it's to put off the old man, to renew your mind, and to put on the new self. Two of them, the outside ones, are not present tense. There's one that is present tense, which in, tells you that Paul is intentionally saying, there is one thing you need to continually do. Guess what? The middle one. Renew your mind. Renew, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words... Preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over. That what? I threw the old man to the ground? Yes. And I put on the new man? How, is that what it says there? Yeah, the ESV has past tense on... Uh, the first... T- you took off, you put on, and you are being renewed. That's good. Okay. Why is that important? Grammar. If, if, if grammar determines that... And if it doesn't mean that, then Paul is saying something theologically that is uh, at odds with the other things he's, he's said. Mark, question or comment? One of the things that's very convenient to do if you want to do that comparison, there are, there's a website you can go to. Hmm. If you just in Google search type in the verse, it will give you 18 translations. 
of that verse so that you don't have to go to the bookshelf and find a grab. Pull them off. BibleGateway.com. How many of you guys use that? Anybody? Several of you? That's excellent. Logos will generate those automatically for you. If you've got Logos, yeah. Good. In fact, I wonder if not ESB wouldn't because it's their own site. Um, Anyway, that little two line section there on grammar and syntax is everything. And guess what you're going to do in H3? A lot of grammar and syntax to help you get those kinds of things right. Number 10. Don't worry, we'll be done by Tuesday. We're on track to be done by Tuesday. Historical appropriateness. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into a biblical one. Here's his example. You may not be familiar with this, uh, but this is an example he uses. For example, one well-known Christian psychologist defines one of Paul's words for the mind in Romans in terms of the Freudian unconscious mind. However, the unconscious mind, the id or superego, and so on, are the manufacture of modern psychology. It is historically inappropriate to read those modern secular concepts, ideas, back into Paul's statements. The word for I is ego. Ego. uh, in, in, In Greek. Well, ego means something very different in Freudian circles. To take those Freudian concepts and go, oh, I recognize it in the Greek. Oh, cool. And push it back in. Is, that's not historically appropriate. Okay, The other thing you have to be careful of is Greek didn't just pop up when Jesus showed up and when the apostles showed up and they wrote in that language and so all of the vocabulary was determined by Jesus. Greek existed for centuries before. In fact, there was even a classical Greek and so sometimes you'll find, as you read through a commentator, a guy will go, in the classical usage of this word, as we read it in Plato, and blah, 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 and blah, 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 is meant this, and you can start going, dude, that is flowery, and that is cool, and I'm going to take all of that that happened centuries before with that word, and I'm going to bring it into um, Jesus' day. So we can do it from our day and push back historically inappropriate into the text, But it can happen the other way. You can go back before Jesus came and the way that the word was used in Greek before Jesus ever came and push it forward in ways that you shouldn't. So how do you do this? Eric. Do you have a... I understand you have an example like English, like a couple hundred years ago or something? Gay. Yeah. (laughs) The word changes. Yeah, the word doesn't mean. Too, there's about five of us on this side of the room over here that would have way different meaning of boss, Ruby type. <laughs> the guy sitting over at this table. Yeah. Just bad. The word bad. Okay. <laughs> Sean. Well, is that one of the main things in Macarthur's book, Slave? Yeah. Well oh, great point. Servant. So yeah, in fact. Translation from Greek. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, in fact, I, I put that down. It, to have a, a United States connotation of slave, which um, and, and to take that connotation and, and push it into Paul in the New Testament is not appropriate. Because slavery in the Roman Empire was very different. And there were many similarities, but it was very different too. You could sell yourself into slavery, and you oftentimes did that for a better living. And you would be treated better. And some people treated you just like Americans did 
with slaves in the United States. So you have to be careful to not in, take those terms in. I'll give you one for me that's a, a reality that um, is going to come out again tomorrow in, in uh, Acts 3. Is my understanding, so this is more personal, not necessarily of, uh, of the way all the rest of you think, but the way that I understand the word ignorance and the way that Peter uses the word ignorance. For me, I touched on this two weeks ago when we were in Acts 3, ignorance is, is a, isn't that bad? I mean, I, I didn't know. So, so you, you should go easier on me because I didn't know. You know, that's the way that I think, and I'm not saying it's right, but I, in my history, my personal history, I have an understanding of the way that the word ignorant works. May not be true, according to what Webster says. It may not be what any of the rest of you think. But ignorance, it, to me, is, is a way to get off the hook. The way that Peter describes ignorance in Acts chapter 3. Ignorance killed the prince of life. I need to get my word matched up with Peter's word. Not push my word into Peter's. If I, if I do that, what I do is I say, as I look at Acts 3, after he said, you disowned and delivered over to Pilate, um, this glorified servant of Jesus, Pilate learned to let him go. He had better thoughts of him than you did. Um, you put to death the prince of life, but then he uses the word ignorant. If I take my meaning and push it into Peter, Peter's like, all of a sudden using a, a word that I guess maybe he's trying to get him off the hook. Maybe I was too forceful, Peter might say with them, if he's thinking the way that I think about the word ignorant. I was too forceful. Let me, let me back off a little bit. Guys, you, you were just ignorant. And, and your rulers were too. What? The rulers? Ignorant? No. Uh, my understanding of the way ignorant works is not what Peter's understanding of the way ignorant works. My idea of what ignorance is is not that bad. Peter's understanding of what ignorance is is wretched. It is a, it is a total depravity term, ignorance is. So you want to make sure that you have historically appropriate words. Let me give you one other example. In, uh, I, I heard Rick Warren do this in the spring of '09. Um, he was doing some teaching on how to do short-term missions, and he made the um, historical observation that um, modern-day missions has actually made a mess of many people in many countries because what they do is USA missionaries go to a third-world country, and what do they do? Throw money at the problem. And they throw money at the problem. They throw money at the problem to fix it because that's what we do. We spend and we fix things. And so we do that when we go on missions. And he's recognized accurately so that, you know, in modern day history, modern missionaries have actually just ruined horrible things. And then he noticed in Luke 10.4 that Jesus said, carry no money belt. You see? I mean, we should have just paid attention to Jesus all along when he sent out the disciples because he told them, don't take any money. Modern day missions. Don't take money. Don't you see? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. You see, that's not historically appropriate. What is he doing? He's taking an accurate historical modern day observation. It's true. We've ruined things on the mission side by throwing money at it. And he's pushed it into what Jesus... No, you start with Jesus. What, what did Jesus mean? Because there's a big problem. Because 
At the end of Luke, you know what Jesus tells his disciples? Before you took no money belt, now take money. And by the way, get a sword. Right? Alright, get a gun. I like it. It's good. Word study, number 11. To understand a passage of Scripture, key words within that passage must be defined accurately, um, as illustrated above. To do this, it is helpful to consider the other uses of that word in Scripture. First, by the same author, and then by others. Um, let me let me show you. Um, let's say you're in. Um, let's say you're in Ephesians four, and there's a word that ex- that you're looking at. Okay, and you're like, oh, you know what? I, I need to know what that word means. Where, where's the first place you go? You go a little bit bigger, and you look at all of Ephesians, and then what do you do? You go a little bit bigger. It's actually a lot bigger than that. But but who's this next circle? You look at the way Paul wrote. Why are you doing that? Why not jump to the way Jesus used the word? Not you. Yeah, you just you you might you just need to keep working in this direction, and then what? I mean, you can make up as many of these as, as you think are appropriate. You might do post-Pentecost passages. You could. That'd be interesting. You might, like priests, you might need to do that. After Pentecost, you go to the next one, you go New Testament. And then you might go beyond that. And who would you be looking at? You'd be looking at um, um, non Biblical Greek. How do they use that word outside of the New Testament? Uh, actually, there was one before that. Is there? Yeah. Thank you. The way that the Old Testament used that word, the Old Testament Greek version, the Septuagint. That's what LXX means. And then your next one would be the non-biblical usage of Greek. How did writers outside of the Bible use that word? So that's what you do, but you start here. Why? Why do you stay here as tight as you can first? Because context determines what? Meaning. Context determines meaning. Your immediate context. This passage right here, actually, Ephesians 4, that chapter you're in, it bears more weight on what that word means than actually the way Paul used it in the rest. But the way he used it in the rest is important. But that immediate context bears more weight on the meaning than any of these others. So you start there and you work your way out. Okay? So word study. Um, uh, first by the same author, then by others. If there's multiple meetings, meanings, the immediate context determines which meaning the author intended. Uh, you need to look at Old Testament background if possible. You can accomplish much in word study with just an exhaustive concordance and some persistence. For, you know what Joel got me? This, this guy who wrote this. He was, he was a bachelor until his last year in seminary, I think. And Kim and I got married. We, we all went to the same church, and, and so he knew Kim before we were married. Um, and when we got married, do you know what his wedding gift to me was? To us? Kim was just touched deeply. And an NAS exhaustive concordance. That's what his wedding gift was. And you know what? We use that more than we used toasters. 
in a dictionary. Before I knew Greek, the NAS in a, in a good dictionary, this is before internet. Um, wow. What? Yeah, internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can get a lot done with a new American Standard or, or any concordance uh, and in a dictionary. You get tons done in your study. For instance, here's what you want to be careful with. Uh, in Romans 8, Paul uses the word called. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Yeah, those who are called. Who are those? Those whom He foreknew, those who He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that they would be firstborn among many brethren. Paul's use of the word called. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 14. Jesus' use of the word called in this passage is this. For many are called, but few are chosen. Uh Uh-oh. For Paul, the called is a very specific group who are foreknown, predestined, conformed to the image of the Son. For Jesus, called is... Many are called, but actually few are chosen. Chosen there matches more with called in Paul than the word called does. See, your context determines the meaning. A word, in other words, you know what that tells you? Called is not a technical term that always means the exact same thing in every single passage it occurs. It has a range of meaning, and you need to stay in your context to figure out what the actual word means. Okay? Same thing with the word flesh. And the word became flesh. Right? And what does Paul say about flesh? Well, let me help you out here. Galatians 6. Um, uh, well, no, not 6. What is it? 5, verse 16. Oh, yeah, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. Wait a minute. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the, and the Word became flesh, which sets its desire Oh, no! <laughs> no, there's a range of meaning. Flesh is not a technical term that always means that which is opposed to the Spirit. Sometimes it can mean essentially the same thing as body. The word became a body. Right? So your context determines your meaning. Number 12, lastly, checking principle. It's good for a student to check his understanding of a passage against the interpretations of Bible scholars from the ages of Christianity. It is impossible for us to know all of the geographic, historical, interpretational issues in a passage. Information Bible scholars spend a lifetime accumulating. Bible dictionaries, commentaries, and other Bible study tools can shorten that process from a lifetime to five minutes. That is not an understatement. Um, Notice that this principle is where in the list? Last, not first. You don't go to a commentary first when you study. The easy thing is, I, I'm, I want MacArthur to tell me what this means. I want Sproul to tell me what this means. I want whoever. There's a reason for it being last. As a rule, it's best to do your own study on a passage and then compare it with someone else's. Sometimes you'll need to use Bible dictionaries and commentaries earlier in the process to get a handle on a certain word or a theological concept. You might, you might see the word propitiation in, in Romans 3 and just go, oh my God, I don't even know how to pronounce that. What is that? And you might need to go to a commentary and go, oh, 
or, or, or a Bible dictionary. Oh, propitiation means that. Oh, okay. And you go back and, and, you, and you keep doing your study. That's okay. That's advisable. However, avoid the trap of opening a commentary and reading it as if it were the Bible. Work on a passage all you can, looking up specific words or concepts you don't understand. Once you've done all you can to process a text, then use good commentaries to fill in the gaps or correct errors. By the way, that right there is H3. Is it not, guys, who have been in it? Work on a passage all you can, do everything you can, and then later look at your commentaries. And by the time you are even get to a commentary, you already have so much to say, you've got more than 20 minutes because of what you've learned grammatically and how to examine a text. You know what's really helpful is, is at some point you'll want to do this. Do you know how many commentaries I'm using? And this probably is maybe evident in ways that I don't want it to be evident. Do you know how many commentaries I'm using in Acts? No. Not six. I'm using, not that I possess. I'm using. No, not four. <laughs> I'm using three commentaries. And they're very different ones. I, I, I use Lenski, who is very grammatical. And he is weird every time he gets around water. Because he believes in baptismal regeneration. You baptize in water, and, and that's when you're saved. He's a Lutheran. He's a good Lutheran for his doctrine on children and things like that. Um, every time there's any mention of the kingdom, he immediately uh, um, casts down to the ground and spits on any millennialist. Um, so you got to be careful. you got to be discerning as you read them. And then I, I read MacArthur because I like to hear how it ran through his preaching. And then I use um, one or two other other guys, either um, Morris or some other guys. Um, I find that I just don't have time to look at all of the commentaries. And I've spent so much time before looking at the Greek and, and diagramming and examining relationships and, and talking with Smed about those relationships that I've got ideas that all I need to do is I need to go to one good guy who looks at grammar and I need to go to a guy who's preached it and I look at it and I get some insights and my world is full and I can't, I don't have enough time. Even, I don't even have enough time in the, in, on Sunday to tell you everything that there is. You don't need 40,000 commentaries. You need one good commentary, maybe two on each book at this point of the, in the Bible, if you can. Um, work towards that. Um, but watching, my, what was my point? Watching Lenski wrestle with the same text that I've been wrestled by is really helpful. Oh, I didn't even think of that. But I don't start there, and you shouldn't start there either. Okay? Uh, reading someone else's analysis it will help you analyze the passage yourself. Last page. Using uh, this checking principle, it will save your interpretation of life. Listen, what if you come up with an interpretation of a passage and you go to Calvin, you go to Luther, you go to Ironside, you go to Martin Lloyd-Jones, you go to uh, Lenski, you go to John Stott, you go to John MacArthur, you've looked at all of them and your interpretation, nobody has your conclusion. What was that? I didn't hear what he said. A visionary. Yeah! You've unearthed 
that's a gem nobody found. <laughs> or you're ready to start a cult. Um, no, not not necessarily. I mean, but you, you but listen, oh, but that should really sober you. You should you should be very sobered by that. Okay, that doesn't mean that there are not new insights to to be gained at. I'll tell you a recent one that I think is, is actually pretty profound. Um, when, when MacArthur was going through Luke and he got to the section on the widow giving her might, her, her last bit, he took an interpretational turn on that that you don't find in, in very many commentaries, if maybe if in any. But he backs it up with his research and co- actually just the context. When, when you see what he's talking about contextually, you're like... Oh my goodness, yeah. That, that example is not given as an example of how to give sacrificially. It's actually an illustration of how the temple leadership are, are robbing and devouring widows' houses. She came to the temple with one last penny. And under their structure, she had to relinquish it. And she left God's house impoverished, probably to go home and starve to death. Really? That's admirable? No. It's an illustration of how the temple religious leaders have robbed and devoured widows' houses. They don't even care about her. Yeah, you come to God's house. When you come to God's house, you should leave blessed. You should leave with more. In fact, that was the expectation of Mosaic Law for everybody in Israel. If a poor person comes to your property, you don't glean your your fruit and your, your harvest to the edges. You leave it for them so that they can leave your property in better condition than when they arrived. But that was not going on with the temple in the first century. It had become a robber's den. They were devouring widows' houses. A widow came, and here's the illustration. Okay, Somebody needed to step out of the horrible trajectory that everybody else had set and say, this is a great example of giving. Somebody needed to do that. I'm glad it was him. Because if anybody should step out, it's probably somebody like MacArthur or Piper or somebody like that, right? Eric. To, to hear Smith explain that, he was apparently in some context where he heard the president explain that, what he was thinking. And I remember him saying that he only thought about like, one other commentary from like the ninth century or something. And he also came to that conclusion like 20 years before he taught it. Mm-hmm. And he sat on it for 20 years. Yeah. Because. Just like, wow, yeah. Yeah. To, to, to say something. That, Good point. All right, guys. There's the the twelve. The, the, you could come up with a hundred twelve. Um, you could condense these down into six, but these are twelve helpful ones. Um, you are being introduced to these things. Um, you, you will be. These things will get built on in H three in a big way by Smed. He'll actually walk you through your passage. Um, if you go into H3 next week or not next week but the next time together we only have two meetings left in two weeks I think it's two weeks isn't it Um, we're going to do one more on hermeneutics because what I want to do is I want you to take a look at a couple of passages I really want to step into progressive revelation going from left to right in your Bible and, and, and press that and show you a couple of uses of the New Testament's, um, a couple examples of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament to give you a paradigm that 
the New Testament writers might be doing something different than what we do. What do we do? We interpret. When, when it comes to the Bible, we interpret it. We try to find the meaning of it. Um, the New Testament writers, as I told you before, they do that sometimes. That's what they're doing sometimes with Old Testament texts. They interpret. They're not doing that every single time. There are some other things that they are doing that um, are inspiration issues, not interpretation issues. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is calling to mind in Paul an Old Testament passage. He begins to quote it, and then he changes it? When was the last time you did that? I hope you didn't. I hope you've never done that. Because that's not an interpretation issue, it's an inspiration issue. Well, what warrants him to do that? The Holy Spirit, who is writing more revelation. And he's he's writing new revelation by using old revelation in the minds of Paul and others to give new scripture. So when it says that he ascended on high and he received gifts in the Old Testament, the king did, and then when Paul says... He who ascended is he who also descended and he gave gifts to men. Paul is not trying to interpret the Psalms. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is saying, whatever the old kings did when they came back from winning, wait till you see what this new king did. They received gifts. This king, he gives them. Not interpreting at all. But he's actually writing scripture, new ideas. I want to give you a paradigm for seeing that so that you don't feel like maybe there's two meanings in scripture that I, I can't see. And um, I, I hope it'll be helpful for you. And again, it'll open the door, it'll introduce for you, but it, it won't answer everything. It may create more questions in your mind at first, but I, I want you to be at least exposed to them, okay? Anything else, guys? There is no homework for next time. Except uh, to just make sure you come. Be ready for next time, okay? If you have any homework that you do want to hand in, if you weren't here, you got something, find your small group guy here and you can um, uh, drop it off to them. And one more reminder, we're going to leave shortly uh, to help that family move. If you've got an hour or two to devote, um, that would be really great. We can get it done even faster, okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Um, this time together. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their ability to endure this much um, and, and the amount coming at them. Lord, I pray that this would just be the beginning of a long journey of careful and normal interpretation of your scriptures. Um, we need your help in that. We uh, beg that you would give your spirit in his fullness to us as we are reading your Bible, as we are interpreting your Bible, as we are studying your Bible, as we are teaching it, as we're preaching it. Lord, we want to handle your word well so that our own souls are fed on the God who is revealed there on you. And we want to handle your word well so that we might shepherd our families well with that word, our households well with that word. And we want to handle your word accurately so that we can bring the gospel to bear on those we minister to. So God, please be gracious to us. Um, And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.